Welcome to episode 70 of Understanding Latin American Politics, the podcast. I am Greg Weeks. I'm a political scientist at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, coming to you from the campus of UNC Charlotte. Um, today it's just me, and it actually is a bit of a vent um, in looking at civil-military relations uh, in this new decade, actually, Latin American politics in general, but civil-military relations more specifically, um, because I'm having flashbacks to the 1990s. So go back to the 90s. Now, the 90s, this is when I'm in graduate school uh, studying civil-military relations. You know, time, you have an impeached president. Uh, you have the show Friends, really popular. Did you know Friends is super popular now? That uh, th there's even this Latin America angle, where baseball players from Latin America watch Friends to learn English. So there's all these stories about uh, Wilmer Flores, who at the time, a couple of years ago, was on the Mets, and he changed his walk-up music to the Friends theme song, and he loved it. He watched it every day. He'd go to sleep to it, um, and that would somehow help him learn English and cure his uh, homesickness from being away from Venezuela. Um, my teenage daughter watches it. So, you know, all this stuff in the 1990s again, and we've discussing civil military relations a lot. There, I don't remember, in the past year, this has been constant, and I cannot remember the last time since, you know, like the early 2000s, maybe, um, that we were talking about civil military relations as much as we are. And by we, I don't mean just academics, but... Um, but in the press too. So now you look at the New York Times, Washington Post, other uh, mainstream uh, media, and you know it's it's there. Um, and unfortunately, this I've always thought about this is that um, for those you know doing research on political issues in general and Latin American politics is that very often um, when there's problems, that's what becomes a hot topic for research. And civil military relations is no. Um, is no exception. Now back then, there was a lot of debate between what you might call those who had an optimistic view and those who had a pessimistic view. Now the optimistic view was that uh, that the Latin American militaries were gradually reincorporating themselves into the political system um, in a in a way that you know didn't involve interference definitely did involve taking over the political system and there were ways that um, civilians especially in the executive branch because the legislative branch is pretty weak in this regard but that the president could um, make sure that uh, the military was was remaining subservient to, to civilian rule and there were a variety of arguments to this effect so this was the the optimistic one where it said you know okay look at things things are are not so bad. Um, this, as at the time, I should add, in the 90s, is that this is an era of redemocratization. So you have uh, the military still uh, a major topic of public debate, as it was in Chile at the time, but it wasn't taken over the political system. So that the um, the transitions to democracy had already taken place. Okay. Then we get to the pessimistic view, broadly speaking, and this is a view that I tended to share. And this was, you know, then this debate between the two, a very niche 
course, when you're in the middle of the niche, then you think this is super important. Uh, well, when you're an untenured assistant professor like I was, then you think it's important because getting published is important. But um, the pessimistic view, or I think realist is probably a better way of thinking about it, is that um, Latin American militaries, especially armies, are deeply embedded in, um, in their political systems in their constitutions, in their in the laws of Latin American countries, in ways that give them the ability uh, and the impetus to intervene. Um, Brian Loveman's book, uh, For La Patria, Politics and Armed Forces in Latin America, which he uh, published in the late 90s, does a really nice job of laying out the history, the comparative history of this view, which is that Latin American militaries were responsible for uh, achieving independence from uh, from Spain and uh, were the most organized institution in Latin America in that uh, post-independence period. And so they were the ones that defined how their role in the country should be. And they saw themselves as bigger than the government. They were literally representing the fatherland, the whole nation. And that then got written into laws and certainly got written into the Constitution. So you have many of these constitutions. Some have been uh, revised since, saying you know, that really the, the military is hovering over the political system to intervene in case civilian governments do something bad. These were woven into military doctrine, um, which at times became very intense course in the Cold War period you start seeing in the 1950s that the the military was writing these articles explicitly talking about how it was responsible for making sure the cancer of communism for example didn't get hold um, so that view tended to say we are in a period of democracy now but these things aren't permanent that the, those views aren't disappearing, all right? That worldview is, is not disappearing. Um, and therefore, this is something that we have to keep in mind all the time. And this is the view that consistently argued against using the military for domestic policing purposes, for example, because this can lead to mission creep. Now, here we are back uh, in 2020, discussing um, civil military relations and seeing all these huge problems that are occurring in uh, in the region seeing the military suddenly brought back into uh, politics um, and so really I just stop and just say like what the fuck look what is going on here just sort of this frustration that we're returning to this discussion that we had hoped was uh, academic, literally, uh, because we're in a period of, of democratization. So we get to, let's look at El Salvador, uh, because this is the most recent case. So uh, today is February 12th, 2020. So this is the, the most recently in the news. We've got a bunch of things in the news, but that's the most recent. And we've got Nayib Bukele, president of El Salvador. And basically what he says to Congress, which doesn't even uh, want to be there. Basically, you've got a fucking week to pass my $109 million loan plan for weapons and equipment. 
and I brought the army with me, bringing it inside to drive the point home, bringing the army literally inside to uh, clearly threaten lawmakers. And, you know, previously he had addressed a crowd, um, big crowd, <clears throat> took a selfie, as he's always doing, taking selfies. Um, and then we have the military is professing its allegiance via fucking Twitter. Okay, Twitter, again, becoming this part of civil military relations, certainly nothing that we would have anticipated in the 90s, um, that how, how open it is. Uh, and to cap it all off, he's saying that God was telling him what to do. All right, um, that's a disaster. That's just a complete and utter disaster. Now, we've seen uh, just afterwards, the Supreme Court said, well, you really shouldn't be doing that, and he backed off a bit. But the the, the threat is there. I mean, nobody doubts that he would um, that he would do that again. Now, a couple quotes for you. Christine Wade, um, in uh, in a in a recent op-ed, uh, writes this. So while the delicate situation is still evolving, one thing remains clear: Bukele is playing a dangerous game. In 1992, at the end of El Salvador's 12-year civil war, the government and FMLN rebels pledged to resolve their conflicts through peaceful means. While certainly imperfect, that pledge is held for 28 years. Much of that success, she continues, can be attributed to placing the military under civilian control and depoliticizing its role. Involving the army and police in a dispute between civilian institutions not only violates the letter and spirit of the 1992 peace accords but attacks the very foundations of Salvadoran democracy okay and a point here um, not only is the history I'm gonna get back to that in a minute but that um, it's not just about preventing coups that it, it's about depoliticizing the military that's the key um, and uh, when I was doing work uh, on, on Chile in the 1990s and into the 2000s, the the important point was how does um, how does the military get structured within the Ministry of Defense, for example, so that it is outside of it's not just hovering over the president all the time. Okay, so yes, that avoids coups, but it's more than than avoiding coups. It's really about taking it out of political decision making at all, and this is the exact opposite of that. Now another. Um, friend and fellow Latin Americanist uh, and Central Americanist Mike Allison is also quoted in a recent news story referring to Bukele, of course, saying he seems to believe that he can operate outside the rules of the democratic game because of his high approval rating among Salvadorans, the discrediting of the country's two main political parties in 2019 election. Um, so fine sort of this populist flavor where the existing political parties are, people are tired of them, people are sick of them. That's true in a lot of countries. Not entirely untrue in the United States as well, of course. Um, and that gives him the sense that this is, this is all okay. Um, and that being popular uh, and oftentimes referring to the people which we hear in the United States also, well, this is for the good of the people. And if you read quotes from people 
you know, average Salvadorans, they're saying, well, he's just trying to do the right thing. He's trying to do things for us. He's trying to reduce crime. He's trying to um, deal with the, uh, uh, with organized crime. Uh, you know, and if Congress isn't going to help him, then what's he supposed to do? Now, the generational issue interests me, the history angle to it. Um, it's very hard to measure. So this, it's, you, it's just speculation. I'm sure there's ways we could operationalize this, but um, Bukele was born in 1981. So he's just still a child when the Civil War was going on, and even when it ended, um, and the peace agreement signed. So that, um, for somebody of his age, 1992 is ancient history. Now much less the 1970s and 1980s. So this, this question of, you know, the military should be depoliticized. Well, that's now quite a long time ago. Um, and it's not a pressing historical issue, or it's not a pressing um, political issue. So as things fade into the past, that's true in all countries, well, then the people who are most deeply um, involved in it aren't the ones who are necessarily uh, active politically. Now, some are, but, you know, this is this is a, a new generation. Um, new generation, I'm going to sound like an old man, and that's fine, but the, um, but the real question is, is that uh, does a new generation sort of see this, th these, um, these political issues in a just in a totally different way? And it sees that politicization of the military isn't necessarily bad uh, as long as you believe that you're doing it for the right reasons. Um, the, the next recent case is Bolivia. Bolivia, and this actually gets back to even my own uh, early career um, in, in from the late 90s into the 2000s, so that Bolivia, of course, had this famously long history of military intervention in coups. And, uh, you know, it has, I forget the number, 180 or something like that coups, so the most coups in, in Latin America, and... Um, was always seen as sort of the stereotypically unstable Latin American country. And then Evo Morales is elected and it's that changes. So you get um, the, the kind of purges and uh, loyalty that you often get in coup-prone countries. Um, and the military appeared to be outside of politics. So that in classes, I would say, you know, whatever you think of Evo Morales, um, especially later as, you know, as he's pushing to get more and more re-elections, um, I would say, look at it, it's really remarkable. The stability in Bolivia is remarkable compared to what it had dealt with uh, prior, you know, so that there was quite a, quite a few years under, under Evo Morales. That, yeah, there was tensions. There's definitely tensions, but the military wasn't stepping in to uh, deal with it directly. Um, but remarkably, all of the you know, the issues of loyalty turned out not to be the case. Um, and it was ultimately the military that, uh, you know, basically forced him out of the country. Um, and so, yes, uh, as an aside, yes, I do think it was a coup. Uh, it's not an uncomplicated thing to argue, but... Um, but it was the Bolivian military that was the cause of uh, pushing Evo Morales out 
and making sure he felt sufficiently threatened that he left the country. Um, so now we have uh, we have a right-wing interim president, Janine uh, Añez, uh, and you know, and we start thinking about comparisons to El Salvador, um, different context, but you get a, a, a right-leaning president, uh, and she says too that the Bible is back. Uh, a little different vibe, a more intense vibe perhaps than Bukele, but you get that kind of religious aspect of it going. Um, and she exempts the military from any responsibility for violence. Uh, of course, opening the door to more violence as a result. And she drastically changes Bolivia's foreign policy. And the military is all behind this. Then after she saying she wouldn't do it, she says she's going to run in the May presidential election. She's the one who can unite the fucking country. She's the one. Um, uh, being a you know, interim president after a coup and then sends thousands of troops into the streets to intimidate people and to consolidate her own rule. So all of the that instability um, that we used to discuss with Bolivia and then had it for a long time is all back. Um, and it is, it is back uh, in no small part because, um, because conservative politicians want it to be back. Now, her actions are not uncontroversial in Bolivia, but at the same time, uh, this, is, uh, this is clear. There's this relief that the MAS is, is out of power, uh, relief on the part of the right. Um, and as a side now, Evo Morales is traveling to, uh, to Cuba because of health problems, which is never a good sign. I always think of Hugo Chavez with that. I, I don't know how serious his problems are, but... Um, this this is just this flashback again in Bolivia to previous times when um, when instability was was much more the norm um, and now that genie's out of the bottle uh, and once the genie's out of the bottle it's not easily going to be put back um, and it generates a lot of uncertainty and fear amongst people who um, who are looking forward to we're looking to the presidential election and wondering, well, you know, what if what if the Moss wins? What if, you know, what is going to be the role of the army? Well, who's the army going to back? Is the army going to back winners? Is the army going to just back the right? Um, and that's an equation that you don't you don't really want to have. Um, I could use m more examples. Um, you know, we're seeing this stuff in Chile, we've seen it in Ecuador, uh, in Peru, and elsewhere. It's it's being normalized. Um, and it, there's this funny 21st century flavor to it, this social media, smartphone kind of um, flavor to it. And I'm not saying that necessarily, well, I'm sort of saying it in a negative way. It's just a weird thing as somebody who spends a lot of plenty of time on social media um, I, I can't criticize it too much but it's it's so strange that you know you get all this stuff is being done by Twitter you get tweets of support from the military um, you, you you get selfies it's all about pictures so you get you get presidents who get a picture with the military leadership 
um, and and then you put that on Twitter and this is the this is the way that we deal with political conflict now and certainly Bukele Bukele famous he's the one he's taking fucking selfies everywhere and saying actually did correctly at the UN saying you know myself he's gonna get more attention than my speech which is 100% true so this is this whole new thing um, and the, as I was saying is the, the normalization is remarkable there's no subtlety there's no effort to hide it so this is completely different from the past so that um, you I mean certainly there was you get pictures or something but uh, this it, this sort of instantaneous uh, I'm going to show you that the commander-in-chief of the army is behind me if we're gonna do this in this globally public way that's that's new um, and this lack of subtlety uh, reflects the conviction that the public supports this um, and in many cases it does Bukele is really popular um, and as many people have pointed out over the years the military tends to be the most trusted institution in any given country and that's even true in those that have suffered dictatorship and military inflicted violence massive human rights abuses etc in the past okay but, but but how much of that is based on the fact that the military stayed out of politics and therefore was above the public fray and um, I think this is a critical question so that the longer that the military is roaming the streets and the longer that the I mean my god in El Salvador the fact if the more that the army is sending troops whenever the president wants a bill passed um, that's pretty fucking bad and I don't know how long that kind of public support is going to uh, remain when you're not staying out of the um, out of the political arena because then you start getting uh, mud thrown at you um, and you become uh, a political punching bag or at least you potentially are uh, and you know of course the Argentine army for example um, has never really recovered from the, the dictatorship that the the military had just destroyed uh, you know the, the crash of the economy and everything military left power in 1983 and it, it, it never recovered from that um, it's been a weak institution since and not, nothing that extreme is going to happen in say El Salvador or Bolivia or elsewhere but um, but it does mean that you're going to eventually you're going to take a hit um, because that's just what happens when you get into politics um, and this stuff is also contagious if it works someplace it's going to be copied elsewhere and that part is scary so in response to Bukele's actions and again all of this through Twitter all of it it, it just 100 percent public and again, not just public I say globally publicly everybody in the whole world is just watching this um, in response to what Bukele was doing um, inviting the the military and Guatemalan President Alejandro uh, Giametti tweeted his approval um, 
and what he said was, uh, apoyamos al presidente Bukele en el esfuerzo por brindar la seguridad a través del plan de control territorial y hacemos un llamado al diálogo y al fortalecimiento de la democracia en nuestro hermano país de El Salvador. I mean, what the fuck is that? That's not a condemnation. So what you want from this is it should be a condemnation. No, he's saying we support him. We support him in what he's trying to do. Um, which is to bring security, right? He has a security plan, and the whole point of bringing an army was that um, was that Congress wasn't going along with his security plan, uh, which was you know fund the police, give them get all this equipment and stuff. Um, so he starts by saying, "I support this," and I, you know he definitely doesn't condemn it. Uh, and then afterwards he says, "Well, you know, we should have dialogue, call for dialogue." Um, and uh, and the strengthening of democracy. Okay, well that's an afterthought. Um, and you cannot help but think that he himself is nothing. Ooh, Guatemalan case. You know, Guatemala's got a long history of military intervention. It's got an extremely politically strong military life. I, man, I could totally do this. Why couldn't I do this? I could say, you know what, they're doing El Salvador, and we can do it here. And um, it's hard to imagine that other presidents are um, are not thinking along those same lines. In uh, an American Quarterly's piece from from December, uh, Frank Mora and Brian Fonseca make the following argument. They say, in the last few years, an inverse correlation has developed between the capacity and legitimacy of democratic institutions to meet society's sociopolitical expectations and the use of the military to serve as a stopgap in support of ineffective civilian institutions. And that, I think, is spot on, so that um, we have splint countries that with splintered parties um, with, uh, with serious corruption, with um, a, a lot of uh, cynicism on the part of the of the people, of the voters, and um, as governments try to get things done, uh, they, they, they find it very hard to overcome that. Uh, and uh, what they're also saying is that expectations are quite high, is that we, we want solutions to these problems. And as presidents find themselves unable to, to achieve what they want to achieve, then they bring the military in. Um, and you know, or, or in the you know, in the case of uh, of Bolivia, you know, it, it can work both ways. It might be the government, it might be the opposition. Um, and you know, as, if that's contagious, then you know, we're then we're going to be uh, spiraling down. And that you know, we have to hope that there are uh, parties, that there are presidents who will rein it in who will who will say like no no we're not going to use the the military for for these purposes because once you get the military routinely involved in politics then you unleash certain forces that you aren't going to be able to control later um and i'll uh, i want to conclude with uh kind of a call and that is that i've long lamented this is that i i it shifted, started studying other things rather than civil military relations, but there were a lot of people um, 
who were really digging deep, um, you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, into what uh, militaries were doing and thinking in the region. And we need to bring that back. We need to have people studying military doctrine, you know, are you, people who are digging into the stuff the military is writing, what's it publishing in its journals, what, you know, all of those things, what, what are its, what, what's being said in speeches, all, what, what is its thinking, how does it see itself fitting into uh, the political system. Um, we need to look at military self-identification, you know, how does the military, uh, uh, you know, what does military leadership think? How, what does it believe its role is? Which, of course, is tied to doctrine. Um, but, you know, how, uh, how deep is that? Uh, and socialization, you know, how isolated does the military see itself from civil society? Does it see itself as integrated into it? Does it see itself as a part and, um, and needing to correct civil society when necessary? Um, and we need people in the field. Really, the only way to do this is to be in a country for a long period of time talking to um, members of the military, talking to people in the Ministry of Defense, talking to people in the local think tanks, etc. That's the only way that's going to happen. Um, and a politically active military plus disgust with the political system is a terrible combination. Uh, and so on the political side, we have to hope that there's, you know, that there's pushback against this. And on the academic side, it's something that we really should study. Um, and with that, um, running out of time, running out of steam, uh, but the only thing I could really think of, of titling this was just, you know, what the fuck, like, what the fuck is going on? Why are we, why are we going back to the 1990s, uh, we don't want to go back to a period when we're trying to figure out how to disentangle the military from politics. And unfortunately, um, in the 2020s, at least as the 2020s start, that seems to be where we are.